Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't have to do that. That weird kadook that yeah, lights lots. going off makes for some reason in films. <laughs> All rather mysterious. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Praise youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 58 of Chart Music. Here I am, Al Needham, sitting with my dear friends David Stubbs and Taylor Parks. Boys, this episode we're about to get stuck into, we we, we might as well get it out into the open straight away. It's fucking cat shit, isn't it, this episode? Yeah, Yeah, you know, but um, yes, it's a sign of the times, though. It's like replete with signifiers of uh, 1980. Mm. You know, you can sink our teeth into it. There's nothing like sinking your teeth into a good signifier. Yeah. In a way, it's better to enjoy something as a historical document than it is yeah. to enjoy it on its own terms. All right, then, pop craze youngsters, it is time to go way back to October of 1980. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Good evening, and welcome to the Motor Show. Well, actually, it looks a bit like that, because amongst all these kids having a good time here, there's a pile of cars. More about that later. We thought we'd have our own little motor show. We've got a host of good things on tonight's Top of the Pops. It's 20 minutes past seven on Thursday, October the 23rd, 1980, and Top of the Pops is nearly three months into a rebirth foisted upon it by the Musicians' Union strike. The strike was caused by the BBC reacting to a £40 million budget deficit by laying off five orchestras and as a consequence Top of the Pops was taken off the air for the entirety of June and July which gave the show and its new producer Michael Hurl a chance to take a long look at the format and reset it for the 80s and beyond. 
By this point, they've experimented with guest co-hosts, given a trial run to the two-DJ format when they teamed up Richard Skinner with Jingle Nonso BE, split up and staggered <laughs> out the top 30 rundown, tried out a news section and a big video screen, but this episode is a step too far, as they've tied our only window of weekly pop excitement in with the 1980 Motor Show, a biannual event which by 1980 had moved to the NEC in Birmingham. 1980 Motor Show, chaps, a very big deal apparently. It was the, the world debut of the Mini Metro, Ooh. the Vauxhall Astra and the Ford Escort Mark III. <laughs> uh, Margaret Thatcher was driven to the show in a Metro, but unfortunately didn't die in any crashes. <laughs> and the BBC were making an equally big deal out of it in a special show hosted by Noel Edmonds, who was the face of Top Gear at the time, with assistance from Jan Lehman, because, hey, you've got to have one woman in there with clothes on. Stuart Hall, Eric Morecambe, and Norman Wisdom. Quite a programme that was, wasn't it? Very good introduction. Or it could have been good. Yeah, well, Noel Edmonds in a car uh, going, oh, well, and then it pulls back to reveal he's actually uh, dangling underneath a helicopter. Um, yeah. But uh, obviously rather more precautions taken for Noel than there were for Michael Lush. Mm. Bit of a shame. Yeah. And now we see this kind of shit getting in the way of this episode of Top of the Pops. So the first question that has to be asked, chaps, is why? I, I, I mean, what are they fucking doing this for? I, know, I mean, you know, why not just have it merge it with the Chelsea Flower Show or something like that? You know, what is? Let's, let's have a time with Crufts and have loads of dogs running about. Yeah, and it, it's Peter it's, Powell it's, live it's, from the 1980 Ideal Home Exhibition. Yeah, it's Top of the fucking Pops, not Top of the Gear. Mm. These cars sitting in the studio. It's 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 absolutely forlorn i actually felt felt for these cars you know sitting there you know their dignity stripped of them sitting there completely out of context in strewn with balloons or what have you and it's just yeah if they'd had little eyes in their headlamps they yes. very much have been rolling those eyes yes during the course of this program very little thought has gone into this yeah it is really just hey we're having a party in the studio mind the cars don't scratch the car. <laughs> it's as if, they, you know, they somehow expected the cars to generate some sort of chemistry, you know, by mm. their, their, their fucking cars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it feels sort of natural in a horrible way, though, because you could see it even at the time. Most of the people at Radio 1 were like this. They were, you know, the kind of people who always describe themselves as motorists. You know what I mean? Like, Motor enthusiasts. Pr- yeah, proto-petrol heads and all that sort of stuff. And it's like the, the mm. that sickly sweet smell of hot engine oil does waft off a lot of these creeps. Mm. Uh, mm. I've, got, I've got a documentary. I think might be some kind of internal home movie or something, not for broadcast, because I couldn't find a transmission listed anywhere online. But it's a visual record of a Radio 1 fun day at Brands Hatch in 1974, narrated by Noel Edmonds, of course. Yes. And it's about as fun as a public information film. It's like, you, <laughs> for a start, inevitably it's cold and it's damp and it's overcast and there's a, a, a freezing sky, the colour of bone. And then by about three o'clock in the afternoon, it's so dim that the 16 millimetre film is just all murk. And gloom and it's that uniquely depressing and unfestive British light 
you know, and then it starts raining. <laughs> but even if this had been staged in Maui, it would still have been a fate worse than death because you've got DLT broadcasting live from what looks like a burger van, you know, and uh, got a couple <laughs> of Pan's people being driven round on the back of a lorry, uh, like transporting oh, hell, circus so animals. Dignified. Yeah, it's them and a moth-eaten womble. Um, <laughs> and they can't even wear, like, you know, short skirts or anything like that because it's fucking freezing. So they've just got a sweater and jeans on. Um, and it's just, everywhere you look, it's grey-faced people in anoraks just shivering in front of signs saying Texaco mm. and Lucas <laughs> and Wesslers. And it's all blustery. And they have a terrible... DJ race around the track in Ford Escorts or something. This is like supposed to be the... Mario Cunt. Yeah. (laughs) This is like the highlight of the day, which, of course, Noel Edmonds wins. Uh. Um, And it's all that mildewed, dismal 70s Britishness, and everything reeks of petrol and fag smoke and stale sweat and a catering caravan where someone's stood there spreading baps with translucent margarine, you know, from a tub the size of a shipping container, and flies landing on it, and a two-hour cure cars to get in and out, and it looks like the grimmest moment in history. I'm told Jackie Kennedy was there. She said it had been the worst day of her life. <laughs> hmm. I mean, in that, in that studio, I think perhaps there's the assumption as well. You know, it's not, all right, so if the cars can't generate any chemistry or pizzazz, of course, the top of the pops audience certainly can. And by sort of like surrounding them, you know, surrounding the cars with them, that their natural charm and effervescence will somehow jazz up the, um, the motor vehicles. But as we all know, I mean, a top of the pops audience is a sort of collective, mm. um, you know, charm void. Um, they represent <laughs> negative energy, these hapless wretches. And, uh, and so it transpires. I mean, would, would you have been asked about this at the time? No! by the age of 12, I didn't give a fuck about cars. I'd gone through all that. My dad was into cars and everything, what with being a lorry driver. And so I, you know, as you do, you look up to what your dad's into. But I'm 12 now, I'm my own man. Yeah. And no, fuck cars. No, if, it was, if it was tanks or... You know, yes, or even if it was like racing cars, or you know, yeah, or, decent cars. If it was like the monkey mobile or something like that, yeah. that, that'd be that'd be interesting. Yeah, or if you had evil Knievel jumping across, uh, yes, uh, but I mean, <laughs> or even Eddie Kid, the 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 Tommy Steele, yeah, uh, evil Knievel's Elvis, you know, it, shaking Knievel, yeah. It would be fine. It would be fine, but no, it's just like a fucking like a Lancia just parked. Just, yeah. Just just whack a stripe down the side or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not even bothered to do that up there. Or if all the cars exploded, that would be all right. Does any any of the panel drive? No. I live in London. No. I live in London and I'm skint. No, hmm? I don't drive. Yeah. I couldn't even afford the parking permit. Because, I mean, I learned to drive when I was 17. I spent too much time talking to the driving instructor about wrestling because we were both into the WWF and NWA. <laughs> and I failed my test, and I came home, and my dad sat there with his tea on his lap and just looked at me, gave me this filthy look because I'd let the family down. And then he just said, well, I want to let you use my fucking car anyway. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, well, fuck you then, Dad. Mm. And then I moved to London. It's like, no fucking way am I learning to drive in London. Yeah. Mm. Fuck cars. As soon as they have cars that you can drive and read a decent chunk of book at the same time, I'm not interested. Mm. Yeah. 
And apart from the lads who are passing copies of Custom Car or whatever around in the playground because he's got nudie women sprawled over a hot rod, it's pretty safe to say that a sizable population at the top of the Pops audience don't give a monkey's wank about cars either. And it's always us lot that have to put up with this shit. I yeah, don't remember yeah. it being reciprocated in Top Gear. You know, I, know, I never saw that episode where William Wallard's breaking off from test driving the Austin Princess to say, oh, look, there's bad manners on that traffic island over there. Let's hear what they've got to say about fatties. <laughs> yeah, my, my brothers and dad uh, were both really interesting cars, and it was just the conversations were just so tedious you know i mean like imagine yeah. investing any enthusiasm or energy into a subject like that you know they're just bits of metal you drive around in you know it's like yeah fetishizing telephone kiosks or something like that i mean i don't mind a nice car but it's i, I don't want to watch top of the pops live from a fucking car park which is all this hmm. really yeah. is exactly yes yeah, an indoor car it's, park it's, yeah it? Top of the Pops yeah. tonight, coming to you live from Bristol Street Motors. <laughs> they think it's exciting. I know. But, yeah, it's the idea. They drive him onto the floor there, and then they just think, right, now things will start to happen. And of course they yeah. don't. What about no. if we left the hazard lights on? Yeah, it looks pretty funky. We get a cold open of the Top of the Pops studio as the kids, kettled in by assorted cars which all appear to be red and under a lighting gallery festooned with bunting, get down to D-I-S-C-O by Ottawan and throw balloons about. Eventually, your host, clad in black racing overalls zipped down to the belly button, reveals himself. Quack, quack. Oops, Dave Lee. Travis, who is still the alpha male of Radio 1, providing a hairy breakfast from 7 to 9.30, but in a month's time the BBC will announce a shake-up at 1, which sees Richard Skinner taking over Mike Reed's 7 to 9 evening slot, Reed taking over the breakfast show, Travis replacing Simon Bates in the afternoon, and Bates replacing Andy Peebles at mid-morning. In the meantime, he's been putting himself about all across the media, doing voiceovers in radio ads for Nat West and appearing on BBC One as the host of Kickstart and Junior Kickstart, the show-jumping-on-wheels competition. And you best believe there's going to be a whole lot of Travis next week. This Saturday, (laughs) he's appearing on Pro Celebrity Snooker as he teams up with Steve Davis in a vital semi-final clash against Cliff Forburn and Dougie Brown. And next Tuesday, he'll be making a very special daytime appearance. Quote from the Daily Mirror's TV page. Radio 1 DJs show what they're made of on Pebble Mill at 1 this week. Royal Marines from Devon have set up a treacherous assault course for them in the studio's (laughs) grounds. It's all part of the Lunchtime Show's three-day link-up this week with Radio 1 personalities as part of the Radio 1 week in Birmingham. Today, it's the turn of Peter Powell and Dave Lee Travis to see if they complete the course. On Wednesday, it'll be Tony Blackburn, and on Friday, Mike Reed. <laughs> oh, your granddad would love to see that, eh, David? Oh, well, good grief. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always imagined Dave Lee Travis as someone who, when he hit puberty... 
the hairs didn't actually sprout around his genitals, but just mm. all over his head and his chin and under his nose and yeah. down a bit down his up his chest. And imagine him having to sniff off segments of his beard and glue them around the top of his dick when he's 13 <laughs> so he's not laughed out of the boys' changing rooms at the swimming baths. You know, it's just something distinctive. I mean, you know, there were other hairy men about then, but there's a sort of, I don't know, there's a sort of insidious pubicness about his, his yeah. hairiness. Yeah. yeah. And isn't it entirely predictable? that Travis would be one of these proto-petrol heads. I mean, as long as we know that he did motoring shows and all that, even if you didn't know that, wouldn't you just think that he is precisely that type of wanker? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All those ageing, like nothing-to-contribute dickheads pumped up with Mm. failed machismo, which is what it really is. Mm -hmm. You know, like ruddy, pot-bellied 53-year-old ex-public schoolboy with arms folded and legs apart in in jeans and shoes you know still mm. smoking nudging <laughs> like, mm. you mm. in the ribs like oh personally i'm a tit man yes you are <laughs> man uh, mm. but it's, what are you driving what are you driving right now yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing is i remember this from the early 80s that generation of dj's obsession with motoring which was so alienating to kids. It's like saying, by the way, kids, we this isn't for you. We don't really mm. care about what you like or what you're interested in. Um, no. But it, it did seem to dovetail with the other theme of this episode, which is creepy sexism and grotesque mm. levels of grabbiness around women. Yeah, it's the car that brings it out, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're right about that kind of association. I mean, David Travis is the sort of person who's really only really into pop and rock because in his mind it's all of a piece with like the rev of a Ford Sierra you know and a chord <laughs> change it's like a gear change you know there's all yes. analogous you've got different music styles are like different tires cross ply and radial <laughs> you know female artist you know real cracker she's like one of those birds you get draped over the bonnet of an Aston Martin at, at a motor mm. show and you know auto cars is NME <laughs> I think that's what they get right Alan Partridge gets right you know that Alan Partridge stroke DLT yeah, they wouldn't have a thin Lizzy jacket you'd have a cash one, you yes. know, like the one that Partridge wears at Tony Hare's funeral, yeah. and a good rock tune is something like Wings' Jet that has all this velocity of petrol-driven motor propulsion. Yeah. <laughs> but I think he's definitely taken the presence of so many cars as a signal to mm. unleash himself with mm. the ladies. It's mm. like he's oh yeah, start, yeah, he's yeah. turned up in his kinky racing driver jumpsuit with an iron-on badge oh, zipped right down as well man yeah and with an iron-on badge on the front in the shape of a stop yes. sign so he's yes. got the word stop in block capitals on his chest almost as a taunt it's like he's emblazoned mm. with the one word that nobody ever dares say to him <laughs> and he, he spends the whole of this episode harassing women as we will see in mm. the most uncomfortable yeah. ways and even though you could argue about whether the crime for which he was eventually disciplined was justification not just to punish him, but to banish his image from all media in perpetuity, like Gary Glitter mm. or, or Jimmy Savile. You do have to say, when you watch this episode, it's hard to imagine any television station feeling comfortable about broadcasting mm. this ever again. Because it mm. is just half an hour of semi-bullying sexual harassment. 
Yeah. And it's really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. I mean, he he, mm. he spends his whole episode as, as uh, Pepe Le Pew. Yes. Except, except mm. he smells worse. I think. Mm. PLP. Mm. As you say, this is what happens when he's in the proximity of cars, you know, obviously has this hideously tumescent effect. Yeah. Because it's not just leather lifestyle, all those things about music. Of course, you know, it's the idea of sexual potency and as a transmitter of sexual potency. Yeah, or as a substitute. Yeah, but off a mini metro. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> I mean, David, you're right. I too am placing the blame on Travis for this Farago. He'd been putting himself about as a car wanker for ages. Mm. He appeared on the Music Star Annual in 1975, driving around Ed Straker from UFO Space Age Car. And mm. in a 1991 interview with the Jerry Anderson Mag Century 21 with Simon Archer, quote, So what was the interest in owning the unique car of the future for DLT? It was a fabulous machine to have, he explained. I bought it on a whim, the same way that you might go out and buy a new stereo system. Mm. Anyway, (laughs) I loved the series, and to actually own the car was something very special. I had the car for two years, with the intention of hiring it out for promotional use. Added Dave, I even had colour leaflets produced, but I never got it moving. In the end, with Dave's radio commitments increasing, he had less and less time to devote to UFO One and finally sold it to an enthusiast from Birmingham. Since the 70s, DLT's vehicles have included a Renault 5 Gordina, a Trans Am, known as the Flying Banana, several large American cars including a rear 1963 Thunderbird and a massive Winnebago motorhome. He's been a drag racer, of course, since the mid-70s, and, and he appeared on an episode of Top Gear Racing 1, and you do know that it boiled his piss that Edmund's got the Top Gear gig and not oh, him. No doubt, no doubt, yeah. So, yes, the blame firmly fixed upon Travis. And I think one thing we can be absolutely certain of is that Dave Lee Travis in his life owned far more cars than he did records. <laughs> yes. Yeah. While Travis tries to explain to us why there's loads of fucking cars in the studio, we see two men off to the side who clearly don't belong there. One bloke who looks like a bearded Tony Selbert in an English teacher leather jacket and his fatter older mate in a manky pattern jumper. More disturbingly, we see a youth in a white t-shirt who looks a bit Weetabix emerge from the crowd, stand in the middle of shot and stick both arms out like an enthusiastic Nazi having a morning stretch before he plays keepy up with a balloon. Was he, was he doing a double Nazi salute there, do you think? Mm. The answer, depressingly, mm. is probably yes. Because in last week's episode, someone else wearing a similar T-shirt did a Nazi salute behind Tommy Vance while he was introducing When You Ask About Love by Matchbox and then immediately played it off as if he was scratching the back of his neck. Apparently, they are acolytes or actual band members of 4B2, the post-punk also rants whose sole claim to fame was that one of them was Johnny Rotten's brother and they've been on with their band t-shirts every week this month. Unbelievably, they're still being let in a week after they baited Adam and the Ants off camera when they made their debut performance with Dog Eat Dog, resulting in a mass brawl on BBC premises afterwards (laughs) and according to all accounts, the Ants fucking battered them. (laughs) It's unbelievable because you've been told for years and years and years that you were put on a massive waiting list and then you had to wait six months to get on top of the pops. But these twats 
who were all wearing the 4B2 band t-shirts. They're on for like every week for a month. Mm. It's like, what what the fuck's going off there? Are they in with a commissioner or something? And they do put themselves about, don't they? In this episode and and in previous ones. We've got a host of good things on tonight's Top of the Pops and here is a little taster of some of those things we have in store. Well, air supply may well be all out of love, but they're certainly all in luck at number 20 in this week's charts. Bush, perhaps, as you've never seen him before, with just a little mucky makeup on. And the story of Anola Gay from Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. Okay, so that's a little taster. We've got a lot of good stuff, and we're going to kick off with an excellent sound from Status Quo. It's what you're proposing. After completely spoilering a good half of this episode, we cut back to Travis amongst all the cars, holding a yellow balloon as he tells us to prepare for an excellent sound. It's actually what you're proposing by status quo. We last covered the innovators of Heads Down No Nonsense group masturbation in the previous episode of Chart Music when they took Caroline to number five for two weeks in October of 1973. Since then, they've racked up 11 more top 40 hits, seven of which have made the top 10, culminating with Down Down getting to number one for a week in January of 1975. This single, their 26, is the follow-up to Living on an Island, which got to number 16 for two weeks in December of 1979. It's also the first cut from their 13th LP, Just Supposing, which was released last week. After entering the charts a fortnight ago at number 27, it soared 22 places to number 5, and this week it's nudged up one place to number 4. And here they are, back in the studio, two weeks after their last stint on The Pops. And yes, Pop Craze Youngsters, I know we did them last episode, but seeing as they've made 106 appearances on top of the Pops, the most for a band ever, it's shocking that we've only done them three times. I can't go back and kill status quo in 1973. <laughs> Sorry about that. Here they are. Deal with it. Yeah, and it's, it is, I mean, not musically, but in other ways, almost like a different group. Musically, it's like mm. exactly the same group, but worse. But yeah. seeing status quo on top of the pops in the early 80s, all puffy eyes and unlaundered denim, um, it always feels a little bit like when you went to the zoo and you saw the sick animals, mm. you know, all mangy and glazed <laughs> behind the bars. Yeah. Although it's, it is better than the <laughs> late 80s when they looked like a bomb had gone off at St. Tiggy Winkles. But... Um, <laughs> <it's> a, <laughs> The thing is, you look at the monkeys aren't wanking together as much as Quo are, though. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's, I'm still haunted by that image of uh, it's, uh, <laughs> both there having a polish with uh, Rick Parfit leaning over and shouting something in Francis Ross's ear. Yes, <laughs> but the thing is, you look at this clip and they're clearly still having fun, and I mean they never yeah. really stopped. But there is that air of tragic gloom of old people trapped in a routine that is 
reducing them to spiritual skeletons. And it's, mm. that, it comes across really strongly. I mean, this is even before they've moved from the denim and white shirt look to the sports jacket and trainers look, you know. That uh. shift is just beginning. But the that madly chomping gum and tapping of the nose uh, make it pretty obvious yeah. that they're mm. having a good time. They're having a fine old time, but they're making a spectacle of themselves in a way yeah. that becomes a bit less charming as they get a bit more grizzled. They are fucking about at this point. There was an interview with Francis Rossi when Top of the Pops was finishing up, and he he said, you know, by this point, it started to get a bit childish. Uh, We used to leave half-eaten curries above the ceiling tiles to stink Mm. the dressing room out. Uh, Problem was, we'd be back in the same dressing room a few weeks later, and they'd still be there, only a bit (laughs) more rancid. Yeah, backfired on us that one and yeah they are playing as if they've had to sit in a dressing room that stank of three week old curry <laughs> and yet they're still meticulous enough to put the capos on their guitars for a mimed performance mm. the, the best thing's happening visually here is nothing to do with Francis Rossi or Rick Parfit it's the drummer who looks like Herman the one armed proprietor of Herman's military antiques in the Simpsons yes and the keyboard player carefully conscientiously miming along to a record with no audible keyboard parts (laughs) it makes you think why stop there they should have had an old bloke playing the bassoon you know like grandpa from Peter and the Wolf well the top of the pops orchestra are finished now unfortunately Uh, they're going to add a steel band in the background. You know what I mean? Why not? Yeah. Actually, they should have put that on the record. It was, these things only <laughs> ever occur to you when it's too late. It's I don't know, it's strange, this. I mean, at this point in my life, I mean, in terms of, like, existential fraughtness, um, like, you had Joy Division at one end of the universe and status quo at the other, you know, and I was very much in the Joy Division end of the universe. Um, I mean, you know, my attitude towards status quo at this time, um, it well, it would been a few months, like, when I was at university, and um, I was doing a kind of sort of coat down of, like, the um, JCR Junior Common Room sweaty disco on a Saturday night, and it's the sort of thing where... It was a weird mix of tentative new romantics and the sort of geezers <laughs> whose ideal attire for turning up to nightclub is a rugby shirt, you know. And of course, you know they'd sort of dominate like with the yeah. rivals and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of did a sort of slag off of these people. And of course, at one point, Quo would have come on. I talked about the status quo, which they're helping perpetuate. Oh, very good. Booming out on the dance floor. Yeah, see what I did yes. there. Yeah, brackets, which are right, kids. Um, so, you know, that was how I felt about status quo, that, um, yeah, definitely. They, they, they were responsible for, um, Margaret Thatcher and what have you. And, uh, and, and, and the fact that, that, like, Toya's much yearned for revolution was going to be kept well at bay, you know, not while there was a wall of quo in the way. <laughs> But but come on, to be fair to quote, they were aware of the global situation as well. The cover <laughs> of what you're proposing is a load of missiles coming out from under the water from a submarine. Cool. They're not nuclear missiles, but, you know, you wouldn't want one on your house. No, no, true. And I suppose as you're in the army now, it's presumably a vaguely kind yeah. of, you know, yeah, fair enough. And the follow-up LP had a massive hand holding a nuclear missile and just stabbing the world with yeah. it. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, really badly done. It, like someone had just got Photoshop for the first time and was just fucking about with yeah. it. And 
someone from status quo went, hey, yeah, we'll use that. Fuck it, why not? They were like the sort of Bertrand Russells, really, of the, um, you know, the sort of mm. heavy pop rock scene, I suppose. Yeah. And I think this should have been pointed out to my 19-year-old self, definitely. Um, yeah. But, you know, looking at this now, it's... I kind of, there's something, I suppose, having got all my kind of rage long since sort of spent and vented on um, status quo, I, I look at it now and I just think I'm, I'm kind of, I don't mind the fact that they at least sort of feel comfortable in their own jeans, their own skins, their own ball sacks, whatever, <laughs> you know. They are the, like, the least existentially fraught band in rock. Um, the fact that, you know, they've gone out there, they'll have had a quick snort or something in the bathroom, you know, a quick group wank as a bonding session or whatever i wonder if they was asked to be on early you know they like like live egg whack it out back to the bar you know and, and yeah right at the beginning rossi taps his nose and parfait has a good laugh yeah, about yeah. it that would have gone completely over my head at the time i'd have just thought he had a secret it was a to me it would have been like you know fast show you you hadn't seen me yeah right. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course yeah 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 but no it, it was it was a drug reference yeah and i think perhaps as a sort the, the sort of example of sort of confident maleness which he contrasts in a way with Dave Lee Travis really and I mean you know like David Travis all of his car aspirations or whatever and his motor show aspirations you can imagine them pooping around in a kind of second hand yeah. but reliable sort of clapped up vehicle from a sort of car dealership or whatever that you know does the job or whatever chugs along nicely and yeah. in a way yeah they, 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 there's a sort of contrast between their form of easygoing maleness not too particularly predatory kind of self-satisfied or whatever but comfortable with themselves in the way that you feel that Dave Lee Travis is not so in other words Dave there's something about them baby you like <laughs> yeah there's a slightly sort of i don't know dennis watermanish quality in a way i suppose yeah yeah this singles look back on now as the last of the classic quo singles mm. but apparently at this point it's their fastest selling single ever and an indication that they are going to survive the early 80s mm. I mean, Rick Parfit's going around in interviews at the moment claiming that Quo are the only band to have had a top 20 hit every year since 1973. So, yeah, they've become an institution. But there's not a lot about them at this point that's going to scare anyone Mm. off. Oh, no. This is not a record exclusively for greasy rockers. I mean, this is... The sound of this is where Motorik intersects with Muzak. You know, it's like... Like serious, Ooh, serious <laughs> efforts have been made to solve the problem of how to play a heavy, repetitive, hypnotic track without allowing it to pick up mm. any kind of momentum or induce mm. any physical excitement at all. It's all just—it's all at that weird frequency of a mid-period status quo record. Like even on a mint condition record or a a remastered cd it sounds like it's been taped off medium wave radio you know with this it's like this sound has been fine-tuned to have no punch and no brightness it's like the texture of a silver handrail that's been worn away from years of overuse you know it's smooth Mm. but it's not frictionless there's loads of drag and it's all tarnished so it sets your teeth on edge a bit and there's just yeah. there's no space in any of these records is what it is. There's no air allowed in. It's mm. like it's been recorded in a pure nitrogen atmosphere, you know, where you strike a match and it immediately yeah. goes out, you know. They've set up this system that operates by itself and it just keeps on chugging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the riff, but really quiet. So get used to this because you're going to hear it quite a lot over the next three minutes. And here it is a lot louder. It's like a model railway going round and round and round at at double O scale. 
you know. Yeah. Now, if you'd seen Quo live around this time, it's very possible that the sheer volume would have put some life back into it. Because, I mean, considering this music is like a freeze-dried version of rock and roll, I suspect the massive amplification might act like boiling water and make it wake up, mm. you know. But it's not just that. Because if you listen to Down Down and then this, it's obvious that something's been sucked out, you know. all the It's like all the mm. vitamins and minerals have boiled yeah. away, you know, and you, you're just left yeah. with this inert husk. It's like it, it's like it zooms <laughs> straight past you and it doesn't even make your collar flap, you know, like it's not really there somewhere. I mean, I have a theory that Quo's audience by 1980 is an even split between Chris Tarrant on one side <laughs> and a younger generation who, who need some stabilisers before they can progress to the new wave of heavy metal bands that are currently mm. on the rise. Oh, yeah. I mean, you need this sort of mush before you can progress to songs about the devil and massacres and all that. Mm. And for the benefit of the pop crazed youngsters, I went off and sat at the feet of my metal guru, Chris Needham, and asked him about Quo mm. in 1980. And he said, quote, What you're proposing marks the beginning of the end of Quo and me. They were treading water at the time, but they still put on a damn fine live show. In the wake of rocking all over the world, maybe a few kids hearing that might have convinced them to check out other bands and come over to the dark side. Yeah. Thus spake the great Chris Needham. And, of course, because I'm a journalist, I did ask him if his brother, John Needham, Britain's youngest thrash metal fan, was still down with Quo. And he said he definitely is. In fact, Chris bought him a three-CD Quo compilation for Christmas. So, there you go. Nice. Or you could have saved money by just playing one CD three times. (laughs) I just don't think that they would be remotely concerned about any of these sort of um, aesthetic, you know, criticism valid, valid as they are. I mean, you know, treading water, yeah, in, in a way that, um, no. you know, like people aren't on those like little sort of paddle boats or whatever, you know, like quite happily and merrily sort of pootling away. And uh, it just it certainly just gives the appearance of being completely, you know, comfortable with that and just being, you know, like you say, this this institution basically of whom no more evolution is particularly expected. It's got to be said that the 4B2 twats in the audience, they seem to like this song. Oh, yeah. They're doing some yeah, pogoing yeah. and gumby dancing to it yeah. and, and getting Horrible. in the way of some more old men in Carco. Yeah, but those lads, it's so joyless, isn't it? It's just that, yeah. that need you mm. see in a very particular kind of young man to announce his existence, you know, despite yeah. his yeah. existence being about as interesting and about as consequential as the existence of a four-foot asteroid fragment Mm. in a distant retrograde orbit around one of the outer moons of Neptune, you know. Part of a cluster of 6,000 essentially identical (laughs) four-foot asteroid fragments. Mm. I mean, the only difference between these blokes and grey rocks is that they've got branded beanie hats and the ability to make noise and get in the way yeah. of things. I mean, there's, they're the kind of people that Dave Lee Travis would probably describe as completely mad. <laughs> yeah, like, like, the most, yeah, the most yeah. dismally sane people you could ever hope not to meet. 
Yeah, yeah. you're right about announcing themselves. You know, like, I- I'm having a bop. What about it, eh? Oi, oi. The kids have all been given free shit to wear, which consists of red champion sport plug baseball caps or white bucket hats with the Volkswagen logo on them. And the overall effect you get from this is if they've been just plunged into the near future and they can't decide whether they're into big audio dynamite, the Beastie Boys or the Stone Roses. <laughs> it's weird. Mm. This is the era of Sanyo Music Centre being ridden by Harvey Smith on the Horse of the Year show. Oh, yeah. And the BBC coming under fire for giving out free advertising. Mm. But this is this is even more blatant. It's it's ridiculous. Mm. Mm. Anything else to say? Yeah, what what's it what's it about this song? I, it, oh fuck no. I think the lyrics are supposed to be about some sort of invitation to a a sneaky friends with benefits situation but it's hard to tell because the lyrics are a touch underwritten and they make do with rhyming what you're proposing with i might be runny nosing which i got no idea what that's meant to mean but i'm fairly sure it doesn't mean what urban dictionary says it means in this particular (laughs) context and it just makes me think of empty cupping which is a practice that really annoys me in old like in old films and TV drama, right? You see it in you see it in old films and especially like BBC or Thames television drama, which are like the peel session version of films, right? Is it where yeah. someone's having a cup of tea or coffee and you look closely and you can see that they're really holding an empty cup and they're just pretending to drink out of it. Um and then they yeah. do a fake swallow. Sometimes they do a fake lick of the lips, and it drives me mad. Have a look, because I'm warning you, once it's seen, it can never be unseen. It is. Runny nosing, though. What the fuck does that mean? Is it is it a cocaine reference? I'm just, I've just realised I've forgotten what it said. Oh, fucking hell. Oh, no, let me check. I'll check. Oh, are you looking it up there? Leave everything to me. Okay, I'll let you do it. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, no. No. Runny nosing. When a man shoots semen into another person's nostril and it comes out the other. I don't believe anyone has ever done that. Who thinks this shit up? <laughs> Urban Dictionary must be a fucking yeah. Russian farm full of sex-crazed 12-year-olds <laughs> just making shit up. Oh, hang on, though. Rick Parfit, he was very well known for sticking a handkerchief up one nostril and pulling it out through the other one. So, fuck. <laughs> Well, there we go. There's there's another song ruined by the internet. There's a sort of self-sufficiency about Quo, in a sense. Really. They don't have that kind of desperate, sort of lustful, raging sexual whatever. You know, you just get the impression that, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty happy in that department, you know. Yes. And there's always the group <laughs> yeah, wanks. Quick wank, on. then a sandwich and half a log. <laughs> and off to Betty Byers. <laughs> So the following week, while the LP entered the charts at number four, staying there for two weeks, what you're proposing nipped up two places to number two, staying there for two weeks, unable to dislodge this week's number one. Fucking hell, it was nearly a number one single, this. The follow-up, the double A side, lies slash don't drive my car, 
got to number 11 in January of 1981, but it would be a torrid year for Quo, with their decision to use keyboards on their next LP, Never Too Late, being poorly received by the rock-crazed youngsters, and having to revert to their previous LP for the single Rock and Roll and the departure of John Coughlin at the end of the year. Mm. And one final quote from Rossi in 2006 when Top of the Pops was cancelled. He said... Top of the Pops has been a friend to everyone in the business. The record companies would know they were reaching almost everybody at once. But there's so much music on TV now that it's hard to tell who's watching what. Mm. Ah, The era of supersaturation is upon us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name is Pete Ellison. This is Dave Cribb. Hello, and we do a podcast called Friends with Friends, as you might have guessed from the music that's playing underneath, uh, which is a sort of lo-fi rendition of the Friends theme tune for rights reasons. We get a different guest on every week on our podcast to talk about their favourite episode of Friends. And we look through it in excruciating detail. We pick through levels of plots like no one has ever done before. So if you like Friends or just listening to people talking, which are both valid activities, do look us up on the old podcast app and that friends with friends and we're on twitter at friends wf well there you go what a great way to start off the show status quo doing their thing currently at number four well we're surrounded by cars as you know tucked away in the corner over there we've got the vw golf convertible which is quite sweet oh I'm getting hit by flying balloons over here. This one is quite nice as well, the scimitar convertible. Lots of other cars we can look at too, but how about artists to look at? Because literally just flown in from the States, Gladys Knight and the Pips. Yay! Hi. Hi, guys. Welcome. Welcome. Listen, I didn't mean to get you with my balloon. You got me with your balloon. It was yes, a good shot. Gladys, you've just come in. I know you're a bit tired because you've been on, on a jet Believe from a million me. miles away. Yeah. Um, your latest record, which we can hear in the background now, Bougie Bougie, is doing very well. Are you pleased about that? Happy, ecstatic about it. The one thing about you, I must say, is you've been going for so long with such good music that you are one of my favourite ladies, and Thank I love you. you. And I was pleased when they told me we were going to be on here together. Thank Thanks, gang, for coming in. Super Thank to see you. We get back in with the music now and listen to the latest sound from the Nolans, the Curtain Songs. Gotta pull myself together. Now that I know, why did I doubt you? I let you go. Now I'm without you. 
Travis immediately starts banging on about the fucking cars again, telling us that there's a VW Gold convertible off to his right, but the camera doesn't bother to show us it. After someone hits him in the face with a balloon, sadly not filled with piss, (laughs) he tries and fails to interest us in a scimitar convertible. Like all the other cars, it's red. Finally, he remembers that he's actually doing a fucking pop show and introduces Gladys Knight and the Pips. PA's on top of the Pops, chaps. It's it's another Hull innovation that was brought in last month. And so far, we've had Diana Ross, Morris and Robin Gibb, the old sailor, Wonder Woman, the old sailor again, Dennis Waterman, Paul Jones, and last week we had Michael Palin and Dollar announcing their fake engagement so they could chill their new single. They weren't getting married to Michael Palin. (laughs) They were getting married to each other. What's the point of them? Yeah, a lot of these brief appearances struggling somewhat with the so what factor. Uh, these bewildered looking, slightly mm. drunk musicians just standing there for like 10 seconds. So, with not, he hasn't even got a question to ask. They're just, it's just, no, you just be there, just be there for 10 seconds and everyone will love it. I mean, a lot of the people they're bringing in are older acts, you know, that, that appeal to the, the more mature audience. Mm. Is this hurl kind of like? saying, okay, we've got to feature these, but we're not getting fucking Lulu and Cilla Black on to sing. It's hard to say. I mean, in, in 1980, probably, you know, Gladys Knight's probably in her mid-30s as well, I suppose. You know, there's old, mm. old then and there's old now. Um, She's like a black Lena Martel. Mm. She's got a like a sensible roll-neck jumper with a big crucifix on a mm. chain. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But I have to admire the consummate professionalism of her and the pips. And I guess by this point, if you're a pip, You'll have seen it all, really. You're not going to be phased mm. by an incongruously parked VW Golf convertible. I mean, they, they do take no. it very well in their stride. Um, and then, of course, yeah. he starts with his kind of arm draping. You know, you're one of my favourite ladies. And she, uh, you know, yeah. accepts that, inverted commas, compliment uh, very graciously, I thought. It would have been more exciting if he'd interviewed Miss Havisham and the Pips. Mm. Uh, <laughs> midnight train to Barnard's in. I mean, look, for a start, there's clearly been no rehearsal, as usual, when they do these little interviews, because yeah. they all march on, no. and the Pips all stand with their back to the camera, mm. so you can't see anything. And, of course, DLT shows utter disrespect towards the Pips. Oh, yeah. Uh, he only has eyes for Gladys. Well, yeah. eyes and wondering great pause but i mean look i know that in the 70s and 80s tv directors would encourage the host to put their arm around the person they're talking to Mm. to narrow the shot and to stop them from wandering off their mark Mm. and out of the bruce Forsyth being the master yeah and terry wogan used to do it as well you watch blankly blank and terry wogan brings the contestant out from behind the little desk for the super match and regardless of whether they're a fella or a a lovely lady um he'll put a avuncular Irish arm around their shoulder. I was going to say exactly. It's a very warm avuncular gesture. Avuncular yeah, it's protective rather than hungry. And he'll say to them, uh, Corona yeah. blank. Corona <laughs> blank. So Lorraine, Lorraine Chase. Well, Coronation Street. You know, I, I, saw, I saw an old blankety blank the other week, right? And saw being a better word than watched, to be honest. And... The, the, they got to the supermatch, and it was uh, blank feet. 
blank feet. <laughs> and uh, I think, the, the, you know, they suggested cold feet and dancing feet. And uh, and I felt really bad because all I could think was severed feet. <laughs> <laughs> and I was hoping Beryl Reed might say that, but she didn't. <laughs> she was worried it would give the game away. Your mail order shoe sales business is no longer trading, Reed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there's 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 a funcular and there's tarantula, really, isn't there? And that's really what you got with uh, Davy Travis throughout the show. Yeah, I mean, the way he's mauling Gladys is really just the hors d'oeuvre for this <laughs> evening's so. banquet of boorishness. It's round the shoulder, isn't it? As, as this episode goes on, you watch what parts of the body he's, he's, he's putting his hand on. And in this case, it's around the shoulder. Yeah. It's, it's respectful because, you know, he's, he says you're one of my favourite artists. Yeah, she's an artist. And the fact that she's got a gang with her, <laughs> yeah. that kind of puts him off a bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she's a classy lady as well. And yes. So even though she is still his property, he does her the courtesy of, keeping those mitts above the equator. Mm. Gladys claims to have lobbed the balloon at Travis before getting to the meat of the conversation, shilling Bourgie Bourgie, their latest single, which came out in the UK last week. She claims to be ecstatic about his performance, even though it only peaked at number five in the American R&B charts and isn't doing anything over here yet. Travis claims that he's a massive fan and was well chuffed when he found out they were going to be on, electing to matily put his arm around her shoulder while giving the slightest of nods to the pips who just stand there and say nothing. Borgi Borgi would get to number 32 a month later. Gladys Knight and the pips knew what the game was. I know you just come off a plane and you fucking knacker, but do you just want to stand next to this bloke for 10 seconds to <laughs> sell you single? Yeah. Yeah, you've got to do that, aren't mm. you? Yeah, they're very gracious about it. Tiredness is a recurring motif, isn't it, in these uh, interviews? Mm. Oh, yes. They do look They do look faintly perplexed yeah. as to why there's cars everywhere mm. and people in hats mm. that say champion. Uh, is the, yes. Travis does that. He tries to make it into Top Gear really half-heartedly for about... 15 so he says he comes he says well we're surrounded by cars as you know it's sadly none of them speeding towards him (laughs) but he but he tries to justify this motor show theme by talking about the cars but it's it's not exactly an in-depth review i mean for a start the director can't even be bothered to point a camera at any of the cars. So what no. you actually see is a car door and a bonnet with yes. Daisley Travis <laughs> leaning against it while he points a finger at an unseen car off screen and tells us yeah. that it's quite nice. I mean, <laughs> so that's the justification for cluttering the studio with boxy early 80s hatchbacks, or yeah. alas, not turning on the engines before locking and sealing the studio doors. <laughs> Once again, the absolute brazen confidence that they have that they can just wing these things, you know, as if they're kind of gifted with yeah. these immense powers of improvisation. <laughs> <laughs> Least able to improvise people on the planet. It's uh, quite yeah. extraordinary. Travis then whips us into the next single, which he calls The Curtain Song. It's Gotta Pull Myself Together <laughs> hey. by the Nolans. 
My mate did that joke on me when this record was in the charts, and I thought he had made it up. No. I was very impressed, yeah. He said, it's a, the curtain song. Mm. <laughs> We've done Burner, Maureen, Colleen and Denise, formerly the Nolan sisters, now the Nolans, loads of times on chart music. And this is the follow-up to Don't Make Waves, which got to number 12 in May of this year. It's the second cut from the new LP, Making Waves, which came out last week, and their first single with the 15-year-old Colleen as an official member, as Anne Nolan took maternity leave after getting married to Brian Wilson. Not that one, the one who plays Defender at the moment for Torquay United. (laughs) It came out at the beginning of September, scraped in at number 40 at the end of the month, then jumped 12 places to number 28 and stealthily rose through the charts until this week when it jumped five places from number 14 to number 9. They're currently out of the country at the moment because I'm in the mood for dancing has become one of the few foreign singles to breach the Japanese top 10 and they've decamped there for the month to make as many TV appearances as they can. So here's the video. Yes, chaps, an actual promo video for the Nolans. Still not the industry standard in 1980, is it? No, no, it's it's a little odd, really. Perhaps they realised that DLT was going to be there and... uh... <laughs> you know, cobbled it together the day before. And when, and when you team that together with the fact that their new LP is the first that they've done, which isn't rammed out by cover versions of the day, Pickwick style, it, this is indicating that Epic Records, their label, are taking the Nolans quite seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the one of theirs that I don't mind. It's Right. Like, I mean... <clears throat> Obviously, it's like a Toy Town version of ABBA records of the mm. period. But someone somewhere has at least grasped something about what it is that makes those ABBA records sound appealing. And they've given this record a sort of icy cold electronic pulse at the bottom of everything, which pulls you in, whether you like it or not. There's tiny split seconds of silence between the beats that get into your brain and chop at the alpha rhythms or or something and there's a genuinely hypnotic quality to the backing track here which survives the cheap blandness of the vocal sound you know and Mm. if anything is actually strengthened by the the absolute infinite banality of the song i mean the producer here is david bowie's old piano player um not mike garson the other one uh, the one before nicky graham so you know credit where it's due i mean it's only a crumpled paper bag full of midget gems but you know there's plenty of worse things that could be in that bag yes yeah. it's almost like they're slightly struggling to keep pace with that kind of musicality i mean they think of like i'm in the mood for dancing you know with the kind of the strings and everything like that it's very redolent of the time when you know women would turn up to nightclubs in party dresses whatever and uh you know dance badly around handbags and um you know and then that whole avanties thing and i think they are Obviously, as you say, they're trying to make a sort of great leap forward into the kind of electronic 80s to some extent with Mm. this one. But there's still all those signifiers about the Nogans, you know, Case Catalogue, Avon Ladies, Shake and Vac or whatever. But, you know, up there and doing it, you know, and wiggling their asses and all that as well. Oh, um, yes. I mean, right at the beginning. Are they doing a sex at the beginning? Because we get a very alarming shot of Bernie and Colleen doing what we in the male stripping business used to call an arse roll. Mm. 
Oh yeah. You know, yeah. Do, you do a bit of an arse roll at the beginning to, you know, just just turn the heat up just a little bit. Yeah. Mm. Get this, lads. Fifteen-year-old arse. Well, yes, exactly. There's yes. a fifteen-year-old arse there, and uh, those yeah. yellow case catalog trousers—they're fucking tight, aren't they? Mm. Very mm. similar to them yoga pants that the fuck-witted youth of today wear. Mm. Well, this whole video is a bit weird. I mean, for a start, it looks like it's shot on that early eighties film stock that mm. gives everything a sort of greyish, brushed chrome look. Uh, yeah. Like, really clear, but strangely distant, which at the time was considered an upgrade on the sort of murky look of mid-70s film. But, yeah. I mean, technically it is, but there's something really dead about it. It makes everything look like a British Leyland advert yeah. or a Daily Mail advert, however you light it. <laughs> and mm. you, you just end up with this slightly joyless, overcast look, which acts like daylight on magic it's very bad yeah it's tawdry slightly tawdry yeah any film which requires a suspension of disbelief um is ruined by this um yeah because it makes everything look like just real people in a real room uh Mm. just doing stuff as opposed to the weird alternative realities you could create sometimes without meaning to on on older film stock so I mean, the video to Jealous Guy by Roxy Music is filmed the same way. on, And for all the improved definition of the image, so oh, now you can see Brian Ferry's kiss curl moving in the breeze, like Jack Lord <laughs> at the start of Hawaii Five-O. It looks cold and contrived, and it's clearly just people in a studio posing and mm. behaving unnaturally. So, like, yeah. you, you don't have that, that smeary unreality of older film and you also don't have the the sort of glaring hyper immediacy of video and the Mm. thing is this video does require a bit of suspension of disbelief because it portrays the nolans as as sexy temptresses Mm. Mm. you know wiggling around in a room full of slatted wooden wardrobe doors um all in white and yellow like a family of Freshly forked fried eggs. Um, <laughs> Pastily fun-loving fried eggs. <laughs> but it is a bit jarring seeing the Nolans sold as uh, high street sex kittens. You know, mm. Whereas, To me, they were always icons of anti-sex. Mm. You yeah. know, like just waiting for the right guy. Sorry, I'm waiting for the right guy to arrive in his... Ford Fiesta XR2. Yeah, <laughs> I always felt that about, you know, that it's almost, again, going back to that club thing, it's like, you know, a gang of girls together all looking out for one another, probably politely or not so politely rebuffing any sort of, you know, advances from the, the chaps, you know. Um, and, Wall of Nolan. Yeah, and, um, you know, I always thought that the, that the thing about the Nolans generally is as much as any shoegazing band, you know, they're doing it for themselves, and if anyone else likes it, that's a bonus. I mean, they kind of exude that sort of self-sufficient <laughs> air. I think there's a sort of group, and I think there are other acts like this, Kylie Minogue up to a point, shaky, that they're not rapturously received by the pop public. It's not about rapture with these people. It's almost like, no. well, <laughs> you know, they're having a go, fair play to them. And like yeah. people yes. kind of sticking with them and somehow managed to kind of remain this have this kind of adhesive presence in yeah. pop charts. The, the for... Boris Johnsons of pop. <laughs> oh, they're doing their best. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, you know, gets obviously, you know, they, 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 they get in people who write some, some tunes or whatever to varying degrees of effect, and uh, and they get played and they stick around for a surprisingly long time. But, you know, mm. the Madonna is just around the corner. Yes. Grace Jones, even people like Banana 
arm or whatever, all that kind of stuff is going to drive them away. There's a very early nod to Venetian blinds, which is one of the key components of early 80s videos. So you've got got to take your hat off to whoever's made this video. (laughs) We get a lot of clips of them pretending to be interacting on set. Oh, give each other a hug and lean on each other's shoulders and... You know, look a bit sad and then look a bit happy. They've gone for this faux documentary style. Yeah. They essentially look like a load of mams pretending to be the Nolans for a TikTok video. (laughs) (laughs) But that sort of is what they are. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Mm. (laughs) I mean, and you feel for them a bit watching this video because what it brings home is one of the more peculiar aspects of the Aventis, which was the very small range of looks available to women who wanted to look classy on a mm. budget mm. um you know yes. that, that look for mostly lower middle class women who were keen to look their best but they didn't want to look remotely sexy or suggestive because they didn't want the hassle or because mm. it was inappropriate for their job or because they just they just didn't believe in that sort of thing and nowadays there's quite a lot of clothes that fit that bill and they sort of were in the 70s and the 60s. But for some reason around this time, it narrowed down to uh, just look like you're 46. You know, they've got mm. these mum hairstyles and lightweight jackets and polyester slacks. And it's such a specific look. Um, but it was everywhere at the time. And in mm. a way, it's ideal for the Nolans as they try and leave the jumpsuits behind. But it's... So clearly the female equivalent of sports casual. And it's it's mm. so inextricably linked to that heartbreakingly dismal world of Richard Shops and Steve McQueen posters oh. and sharing a bottle of nasty white wine with your fiancé in a bistro in Watford. Mm. And it it clashes <laughs> with what the director's trying to do here with all these close-ups of their wiggling asses and their mm. heavily made-up eyelashes fluttering, you know. and uh, yeah. It's mm. like, there's that vaguely suggestive, voyeuristic thing of filming them through the Venetian blinds as well, you know, as mm. if, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's like he wants it to be a little bit electric blue, you know, as opposed to, yes. as opposed to <laughs> fried egg yellow. Uh, but in fact, if you listen to the Nolans' one venture into hopeful eroticism, their um, uh, Japan-only 1981 single, yes. Sexy Music, you can see that their <laughs> relationship with sex, at least in the context of pop music, is not an easy or a, or a natural one. I mean, it's the, I mean, apart from the fact that record sounds like it's only in 1981 because 1978 picked it up and drop kicked it. It's the, <laughs> it's the kind of sort of sodden sub disco record. Uh, it would, wouldn't sound convincing on the waltzers, never mind in mm. the bedroom, you know. But mm. selling the Nolans as sexy was never going to work. But that's as much yeah. a criticism mm. of 1980 as it is of the Nolans, because in 1980, yeah. a group of non-punk young women can't really be sold as anything else except mm. sexy. Yeah. It's like the apparatus is 
is not in place, you know. Mm. And it's mm. like looking back, the Nolan's whole career just looks like a load of hanging around waiting for 21st century daytime ITV to exist. Hmm. Yes. Loose women, yeah. But, it, yeah. but, you know... I don't know, though, Tell. I mean, Sheena Easton's going to come along in... Well, now. Sheena Easton's here now. When we have four Sheena Easton's here. Yeah, right, mm. because pre-print Sheena Easton was... Basically, Sheena Nolan. Hmm. Oh, why didn't Prince hook up with a Nolans man? That would have been <laughs> fucking amazing. Yeah. Even with this single, there's always that feeling I get with the Nolans that as soon as they strike up, it's like, hello, have you been to a Harvester restaurant before? Yes. I'm trying to work out who their fan base are. Glenda out of Crossroads, isn't it? Oh, yeah. 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 They're still just about managing to keep both legs on the stools of Pure Pop and the Butlin circuit. I mean, Denise would actually take steps towards a solo career in a couple of months when she supported Little and Large at their (laughs) seven-night stand at Caesars Palace in Luton. But unfortunately, Eric Harris of the stage wrote, I couldn't help wondering if she's done the right thing by splitting from her sisters. A female singer has to have something special. And although Denise has a good voice, she seems desperately short of her own exclusive material. And you could pretty much say that about the Nolans as a whole, couldn't you? Mm. Mm. Yes. I mean, I think it's what you said earlier on is quite true, that there are a bunch of women who pretended to be a pop group like the Nolans. So the following week, Gotta Pull Myself Together stayed at number nine before sliding down the charts. The follow-up, Who's Gonna Rock Ya, got to number 12 in January of 1981, and they'd only have two more top 40 singles over here. However, as this episode is going out, the Japanese are going mental over the Nolans to the extent that the Japanese army have been called out to protect them from their new fans. And the Making Waves LP, which was known over there as Happy Dating Love, got to number one on the Japanese LP chart, becoming Japan's ninth biggest selling album of 1981. Fucking hell. Mm. Can you imagine being a Japanese seven days jankers and having to contemplate that image? We had a fucking empire right across Asia, and now we're doing this, Mm. protecting some Irish girls. I'm just only glad that Yukio Mishima sliced his stomach open back in 1970 so that he could (laughs) see the Japanese army run out to the Nolans. The influence by the Nolans on Japan is so extensive that in 2009, the UK anime magazine Neo speculated that practically every all-girl anime since the early 80s is based directly on the Nolans. (laughs) With Anne who rejoined in 1982 as the matriarch, Bernie as the tomboy, Linda as the girl next door, Maureen as the snooty maiden, and Colleen as the baby with a dark power. (laughs) I'm just thinking about Nolan tentacle porn now, so let's move on really very quickly. (laughs) As usual. Quick as we can, please. That 
jarring note, we're going to step away from this episode and promise that we'll pick it back up tomorrow in the next part of chart music number 58. So, on behalf of David Stubbs and Taylor Parks, this is Al Needham strongly advising you to stay pop crazed. <laughs> Sharp music. It's an S-Pod thing. The podcast revisiting S-Club 7's insane TV show. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge-watched this. Anyone who's not on drugs. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. Uh, it was honestly <laughs> truly appalling. Guests help me analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. It feels weird to me to say the phrase sex object in a show that <laughs> was aimed at six-year-olds. Do you think Do you think there's a, one of the problems with this show is that seven is too much? It's an S-Pod thing from Great Big Owl. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.